I know why you're here. I know because I was once looking for the same thing. A podcast. It's the thing that drives us. The thing that brought you here. Well, this is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill. The episode ends and you go back to believing whatever you want to believe. But you take the red pill. You stay in Pop and Lock land. And I show you how deep the podcast hole goes. Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. Joining us today to discuss the Wachowskis' cyberpunk breakthrough, The Matrix, our mutual exchange coordinator at the Center for a Stateless Society and the senior academic programs coordinator at Students for Liberty, Corey Massimino. Hi there. And the critic at large for Vox, Emily Vanderwerf. Hi. So the movie came out in 1999. What I really want to know is, do you remember the first time you saw The Matrix? And what was your initial reaction? Um, I guess I'll go first. I since I think I think I'm the younger one, so my answer is no. But because uh, <laughs> I was only four when it came out, um, I don't I don't remember exactly when I saw it. But um, I mean, it left a la- lasting influence on me. Um, I study philosophy in college now, and uh, I'm not sure I would if if I didn't watch The Matrix when I was at a very young age, and it kind of impressed on me, uh, you know, that way of thinking. So I can't remember the time exactly, but I definitely remember its influence. Yeah, I saw it in theaters when it came out, um, which I guess makes me old. Um, I <laughs> not at all, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah, I I was uh, my senior year of high school is when it came out, and uh, I saw it with my uh, then girlfriend, and she could not have been more bored, and I could not have been more <laughs> taken with it. Uh, <laughs> and it spoke to something deep in me that I didn't fully understand for many years, but. The Matrix uh, was a really formative movie for me. I watched it many times uh, on, you know, it was one of the first DVDs I owned. So I've seen this movie probably 30 times. Wow. Why do you think The Matrix has stuck around as part of our cultural vernacular for so long? Like, for instance, and we'll discuss this a little bit later, the metaphor of, of the red pill or being inside The Matrix is still a very prevalent oft-cited and and referenced uh, sort of illusion that uh, has now become somewhat of a trope that people use. What is it about The Matrix that you think has allowed for that? As somebody who, you know, looks at the history of movies, I'm going to hop in here and say, um, when it came out, it was, there was nothing else like it. It was so original and so groundbreaking. Uh, I I recently was on a, a different discussion about uh, the the Matrix, and someone brought up a quote, I think, from uh, Joss Whedon. I don't remember for sure, but like it was, it said the Matrix was so far ahead that people had to sort of run to fill in the ground between what had been there and what the Matrix was. So you see that happen every so often. Somebody makes a movie that's so groundbreaking that everybody else has to kind of figure out a way to like compete with that or best that or whatever. And I mean, Star Wars is an obvious example. I think uh, a recent one that's had that sort of impact is um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse in the world of animated film. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what is really fascinating about this movie is the way that it sort of broke that new ground, but also the way that it felt, you know, very much within in the line of everything that had come before. It's it's a pretty straightforward hero's journey 
it just introduces a bunch of new concepts and they're cut often your for your first uh, intersection with those concepts, your first time hearing about some of these philosophical, uh, theological, and um, honestly, science fiction ideas like they had been elsewhere, but this was the first time that they entered, you know, the pop consciousness in a big way. Kind of jumping off of that, I so I had only seen, I know, shocker, I'd only seen The Matrix for the first time recently in order to do this show, um, partially because Landry knew I would love it. And he was like, well, we have to do a show on this now. But uh, so as I was watching it, that was so obvious to me. I was like, wow, for this movie to have come out in 1999, a lot of the, a lot of the themes and uh, themes are very prevalent still in pop culture today, even though at the time... Uh, shows like the X-Files were very popular. Uh, they pulled a lot, a lot of uh, themes from that show. Also, they pull, uh, the Matrix pulled a lot from like the Alien movies. So there are a lot of things they took from pop culture that were popular at that time. And I just think they kind of just catapulted themselves into, into the future of pop culture in the sense that they definitely defined what science, uh, sci-fi movies and sci- the sci-fi genre in general. Cause there was even a point dur- uh, during the movie that I was like, wow, Westworld really borrows hev- heavily from the themes <laughs> in the movie. Um, so I just thought, I thought that was super interesting, especially since I watched it for the first time more recently, it was even more apparent that how groundbreaking the film was and from a thematic standpoint. And you have no uh, nostalgic connection to the movie. And so I was really interested to see what your reaction was because you came to it with sort of fresh eyes, Natalie. So it, it, it warms my heart to hear that you enjoyed it and, and found it as groundbreaking as the rest of us did when we saw it at the time. This movie was the first r-rated movie i ever saw i believe the the like r-rated cut i believe honestly that another keanu reeves movie was actually the first one i had seen uh and it was speed but it was the uh made for tv cut for it so when i finally saw the unedited version i was like oh this is dirty I think there's um, a couple other vantage points, too, uh, from which to look at its popularity. I, I agree with everything you all said, especially Emily's points about it being in the history of film. Um, the, the first is that if you look at the other popular movies around that time from 1999, uh, you have like Office Space and American Beauty and Fight Club. And there's a very distinct trend uh, that The Matrix was a part of, which was movies that seem to be responding to uh, you know, the mundanity of the 90s and, and the boring drudgery of corporate office jobs um, and all of those movies that's right. very much examined and illustrated and, um, and, sort of, and sort of attacking that from different angles. And then the other vantage point um, is that I think one reason it became such a, such a fixture in pop culture and how it became incorporated into our vernacular, even by people who've never seen it, Um, you know, Natalie, I'm sure you recognized all the tropes and quotes and gimmicks that have been parodied and mentioned many times watching for the first time this week. Um, but part of what made it so lasting, I think, is that, I mean, it's, it's not talking about fundamentally new ideas. Um, you know, nowadays we call it the matrix, but you know, 2000 years ago, you might've called it Plato's cave or Mm -hmm. 500 years ago, the, you know, Descartes uh, thought experiment about the demon tricking us. Um, into, into not, uh, uh, believing in reality. And, and, and it's just fascinating to me that I was able to make these like really abstract, uh, ideas so accessible, um, with this, with these single terms and, and easy to understand concepts that, that 
those philosophical uh, ideas have like percolated into the mainstream, even when people don't realize exactly where they started from. Yeah, I think I I want to sort of piggyback off uh, Corey's point about those 1999 movies, um, some of the ones he listed, and then also uh, being John Malkovich, uh, Fight Club. And uh, there's a bunch of them that I have sort of called um, end of history movies after the famous Francis Fukuyama <laughs> quote mm. about how like yeah. history had come to an end and capitalism had won and like we were just in for a glorious millennium or whatever. These movies are all about like the fundamental emptiness of that idea, the fundamental emptiness of the idea that you can find meaning in, you know, in consumerism, in capitalism, in like material gain for its own end. And I think that was a really fascinating trend. But it's also interesting that The Matrix and Fight Club, kind of the two movies that have, you know, the most of a genre gloss to put over that, that sort of idea are the two that sort of seem to have lasted. Right. And 1999 was also just like, I want to do a side note, a stellar year for movies. Phenomenal. Yeah. I had looked up recently what was like, what's been the best year for movies in the last like 45 years. And actually 1999 was like, I think number two or number three on the list. (laughs) So when we say phenomenal, it was, it's been, been quite the, quite the impression over the years. Yeah. You also in 1999 have the deeply philosophical Toy Story 2. Yeah. Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> classic uh, film. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's uh, any of the Toy Stories. <laughs> uh, it's an intersection of a whole bunch of like old masters who have some of their best films in that year, and, and then a whole bunch of like new directors who are just starting out, like the Wachowskis. And it's uh, it's a really fascinating film year for that reason. Right. It's a it's an interesting tipping point, not just from one millennium to the other, but it, it really is sort of a. Uh, a gap that's that is bridged by these these films that have had so much influence um and and but we're still borrowing heavily from successful um ideas as far back as plato and as near as films like alien uh that i happen to notice the the sort of uh um imagery uh, very akin to alien for the first time uh actually watching it this this playthrough because i had uh it'd been a few years since i'd seen it and uh, the last time i don't think i had paid uh, as much care uh in my viewing and uh, a lot of things kind of kind of popped out at me in that way um whether it be the generally uh, pretty good or, and groundbreaking visual effects for the time, except for that uh, shot when Trinity jumps through the window at the very beginning and goes <laughs> horizontal. I was like, okay, I know the rest of them are very good, but this, it just looks bad. Emily, uh, you have actually written uh, an article for Vox that we can link to in the show notes uh, so that our audience can go and read it. Um, but you call The Matrix, uh, by a very interesting uh, title, you call The Matrix the eggiest movie ever made. <laughs> Would yeah. you be able to explain this uh, for our audience? <laughs> yeah, I've discovered that when I use the term egg, the cis don't always know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I am, I'm a trans woman, and one of the reasons that I was so drawn to The Matrix was because it was exploring a lot of these ideas that's also led me to come out. And both of its directors, Lana and Lily Wachowski, have come out as trans women since The Matrix was released. So when I say eggiest movie ever made, the term egg is used within trans circles to refer to a trans person who has sort of not yet realized they're trans 
maybe suspects they're trans, but is trying not to think about it too hard. The idea is sort of that you're like trapped inside of a shell, like Neo in his, his battery container when he wakes up in the real world. And to break through that shell is to become your real self, is to be born or reborn or however you want to think about it. But also there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of like work that goes into that. But once you're out, you can sort of embrace the reality of who you are and, you know, what you need to do to live a happy, fulfilling life. And on that, in that regard, the matrix is so tapped into that idea. Uh, there's a new documentary on Netflix called Disclosure about trans representation in movies and TV. And I don't think it's very good, but there's a section where Lily Wachowski talks about the matrix and she's like, I wasn't really sure. You know, I didn't really know I was trans at the time. I knew there was something up. And now she goes back and looks at the matrix and is like, Oh, okay, sure. Of course, all these ideas were filtering into this movie. And like, when you view this as a story about a trans person coming to terms with themselves, there's so many like marks of that, like, uh, Neo, uh, Agent Smith dead naming Neo in essence by calling him Mr. Anderson. And then Neo says, my name is Neo is such a trans moment. And, you know, uh, when Trinity, uh, comes up to Neo at the very start of the movie and is like, uh, he says, I was expecting a guy. And she says, most people are like, Again, extremely like you, you can imagine where the Wachowskis were drawing that from, even if they couldn't. And the Matrix is a landmark of trans cinema because it's probably the movie made by a trans director that the most people have seen. I can't imagine there's one that's more than this. And, uh, that has introduced a lot of these, you know, fundamentally trans ideas of how we conceptualize the universe to a huge audience. Now, Emily, that piece that you wrote came out like, with the 20th anniversary of the matrix coming out. Um, did the first time you saw the matrix, is that ultimately how you digest the film or did that not come until a few times after watching it and like for further, uh, further introspection and that kind of stuff that, that the film was very heavily speaking to the trans audience. You know, I don't know that I figured like I, in, I saw this movie when it came out in 1999 and I didn't really start to have, serious thoughts about my gender until 2003. And like, I, I obviously had been having them. I just didn't understand them in those terms because it was the nineties and trans stuff was so far off the center of the radar. So I just sort of had these vague notions of what was happening. And in 2003, I, you know, did some internet searches and then it took me 15 years to come out. So that's, that's, that's the Emily Vanderwerf story in a nutshell. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I didn't really th start thinking about the matrix as a trans narrative until after Lana Wachowski had come out. Now there were rumors about her gender transition as early as the uh, first matrix sequel in 2003. And if you want a sign of how uh, trans unfriendly mainstream discourse was in 2003, go look up some of those rumors because they are horrifying from the press at that time. But then by 2012, when uh, the Wachowskis made a really excellent movie called Cloud Atlas, um, she had come out publicly and there was sort of this move to like revisit their work and think about it in terms of, of trans identities. And that was kind of when... The Matrix, for me, became uh, a film that was explicitly about trans issues. Now, academics, scholars had been saying that for for over a decade at that point, especially people who uh, are in the field of queer studies in some regard. But yeah, for me, that was kind of when I had that breakthrough. And that was when I started to think, maybe there was a reason I watched this movie so many times when it came out. Um, 
I so often realize that the movies I most loved when I was a teenager were about gender issues in some way that I didn't fully understand, but completely tapped into on a, on a subconscious level. And the matrix is, the matrix is probably the mo- the biggest of those outside of maybe the exorcist. It's an interesting idea. And it's, it's, I mean, it becomes obvious upon viewing it, I think, in, in retrospect, that those ideas are in, embedded in the movie and knowing about Lillian Lana Wachowski as well. But I think what, what really makes it such a, a, an interesting idea is the fact that the red pill metaphor has been co opted by, um, men's rights activists in general. Um, I I can't even, do, do either of you know when I, for instance, I know the Red Pill subreddit has been around for, for several years, but I don't know exactly when it started. So was there a moment that, that you think people sort of latched on to that idea for that specific end? Um, and how does the, the tension between uh, these two competing sort of, uh, ideas of what the movie represents complicate how you view the movie. So I covered the sort of Gamergate movement in 2014, and that was my first exposure to the red pill. And it was a lot of people's first exposure to it. And from what I could find, it was relatively new. I'm sure that it had sort of floated around um, 4chan and some of the other uh, image boards that were sort of propagators of the early alt-right um, I'm sure it had been there before, but but 2013, 2014 sort of seems to be ground zero for it in terms of it becoming more of a, a mainstream meme on the internet. Um, I do think that there is a connection between these two ideas, which I'm sure we'll continue speaking about, of like trans trans liberation and then also kind of, you know, uh, white men overcoming the, the strictures of capitalism to be their best selves, I guess. And uh, I think it is this idea that like something about society is false. Something about society society doesn't seem to make sense. And you can sort of place that target wherever you want. For a trans person, it is very much inwardly oriented. I have to overcome the self in order to become myself. But for, you know, someone who is a a video gamer who sort of feels this fundamental disconnect from like societal meaning, you might look and say, oh, it's, you know, the forces of neoliberal, um, Neoliberal capitalism, you know, that have sort of a uh, lean in feminist bent or sort of promote social justice causes in terms of like, if you will buy our products, you know, that will make us happy. Like, as a trans woman, there are so many, we're in Pride Month right now, there are so many people who release trans flag pride like beer cans. And that's supposed to make me feel good about myself. So, you know, I think that there is that element of those two ideas are connected in that way, but they take vastly different ideas of what the target should be. Yeah, I think um, I think the it's part of a broader change in culture too. The the widespread um, uh, use of the term red pill, because at first I I mean it was like Emily I don't know exactly when it started popping up, but it it was clearly I think you know appropriated by um, folks whose ideology certainly the Wachowskis um, would not be particularly partial to, and I don't think the Matrix is really speaking to at all. But it was appropriated by them. But now it's become, I mean, it's still used most prominently in, 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 in those uh, circles. But it's you also see it sometimes just in normal discussion on social media to refer to, you know, you know, shorthand for opening your mind or reading a bunch of new literature that totally changed the way you view the world. And um, I think part of that is because the 
the popularity of the matrix has gone hand in hand with the general decline in American institutions and government and media um, and academia and business. And it seems like the red pill thing latched on to, to that declining trust. Um, and obviously that declining trust can be channeled in like more or less positive ways, like as we've seen in the last few years, but um but I, but I think I think the reason it's it's, it's caught on is is part of that actual that really real cultural um, change that that um, the matrix speaks to, um, which like Emily said, I mean, but it can be a metaphor for so many things. That's part of why, like Emily said, the trans um, metaphor is beautiful, and there's also neoliberal capitalism stuff. I mean, the matrix to me is the most quintessentially anti-authoritarian film um, probably ever. Uh, you know, everything from the Rage Against the Machine soundtrack. Um, you know, to the basic, <laughs> to the basic plot, to the, to the, to the agents, to everything. Um, you know, I, it's probably responsible for me being interested in philosophy, but also me eventually, you know, being drawn to anarchism. Um, it, it can certainly be interpreted in anarchist ways or, or, or anti-capitalist ways or, or just a million different ways to, to, you know, interpret authoritarianism of the state or the gender binary or whatever you want. So I think that's part of why it's latched on. So Corey had brought up this idea of trust, and I actually had written uh, written down a question earlier thinking about how mistrust is, is central to the movie. And I was wondering if you guys could come up with some examples of how mistrust really kind of defines and guides the, the movie. Well, I, I think it's important to, I think a lot of people see the movie and they're sort of drawn into very conspiratorial thinking when they try to somehow apply the insights to the real world. Um, and that seems mistaken to me, but it also seems mistaken to me to go too far in the other direction and just say, well, you know, the world is fine. There's no one with competing nefarious interests, you know, uh, trying to, you know, harm other people. So it seems to me somewhere in the middle, right? Like you've got to, you've got to find this this golden Mm -hmm. mean. Um, I, I think the, I think the movie itself, um, you know, doesn't really promote um, a conspiracy theory so much as, you know, this broad, like, you know, sci-fi fictional narrative. Uh, But you can apply those insights to like real world power struggles, I think, in an interesting way. Of course. Yeah, I wasn't trying to suggest that uh, the movie is a conspiracy theory in any way. I think part of it was I had when I before I watched the movie, we obviously did an episode on X-Files recently. Um, And then I heard about how X-Files influenced uh had some influences in the matrix. So then I was looking at it through that lens. Cause I was, I'm one of those people that watched the X-Files and thought uh, it was a bunch of conspiracy theories um, episode after episode. So I think I kind of went in with a little lens of that, but I think the, the use of mistrust in the matrix in terms of you question reality and you question who, who's who's right and who's wrong and obviously who who you can trust i think is a central theme but it's not necessarily it's not necessarily to uh it's not unrealistic is what i'm saying is what i'm kind of hinting at i didn't i doesn't lean conspiracy theory at least oh I no think. i didn't i didn't mean to suggest necessarily <laughs> yeah. that you were implying it was a but but mm-hmm. i see that a lot i think and i and i worry and i think conspiracy theorizing has become much more popular than it used to be and I and I think that's part of this broader cultural shift that the Matrix is a bit a part of, even if I wouldn't say it's really responsible for. But um, oh, but yeah, I, I completely agree with the mistrust thing. I mean, you know, it, it goes all the way from you know mistrust of the senses. You know, that goes back to, to Plato. We can't trust reality itself. Um, you know, to to more modern 
and, and then postmodern, um, you know, political and socioeconomic commentary about trusting, um, you know, establishment institutions. Um, it's really amazing how it kind of explores all these things up and down. I actually, I wanted to, to sort of uh, uh, talk about that, that X-Files connection, Natalie, because yeah. I did, this is going to sound like a tangent, but I promise it's not. I, I wrote a, <laughs> I wrote a book about the X-Files and uh, the, Whoa. I, I interviewed Chris Carter extensively for that book, the creator of the X-Files. And he talked a lot about how in the nineties, there was kind of this idea that like, again, because we had reached quote unquote, the end of history, like we could trust government institutions, we could trust all of these things. But there was also this undercurrent of people who were like, wait, but can we like Watergate was at that point 20 years ago. So like there was this tension between the idea of placing trust in institutions and also doubting them that the X-Files sort of stepped right into the middle of. And by the time it came back in 2016, uh, he, he was already like troubled by the way that it had influenced real life conspiracy theories and made conspiracy theorizing so much more popular. So I think that the matrix lives in that space in a way that is really instructive because it is kind of about a conspiracy theory, like within the fiction of the film, it is a conspiracy theory that everyone is being made to believe that, you know, they live in this world that is not real, but it is also like sort of a symbol of every conspiracy theory ever, which is if you can just find the people in charge, you can defeat evil and make a better world. And I mean, we all know that's not true, but on some level, we all want to believe the solution is that easy. And The Matrix really does present that. And I think one of the reasons people don't like the sequels is because they complicate that idea. And um, I don't want to get in too far into the sequels, but I, I do think that's interesting. I think that's a great point, Emily. And because uh, I was wondering if we were going to get in the sequels. Uh, which I love. Anyway, I don't care what anyone thinks, but um, they're, <laughs> and they're absolutely, I mean, because they're totally, yeah. yeah, yeah, rad. And Cloud Alice is awesome too. We should do another podcast about that. That's the best movie from the 2010s. <laughs> but, um, and Sensei, that's the best show. Just anything with the Wachowskis. Um, but yeah, the sequels, like, you know, and like, without spoiling anything, like the solution at the end of the day is not, you know, it's not going to be some like very overt, like Emily said, us versus them revolutionary activity but something a lot more like peace and compromise um and 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 i think it's it's a shame because there are even uh, even some you know the x-files has been incorporated pretty explicitly into like or you know inspired uh conspiracy theorizing and the matrix too like people interpret i think the problem is interpreting like emily said the, the fiction itself is the conspiracy theory like people are literally being you know like brainwashed in a way and and people want to apply that like literally to the real world you know you have like total weirdos like like david ick i've heard of him don't don't look him up if you have there's no point but I mean, he's, a, he's a very popular like new age uh right-wing conspiracy theorist and and he has a whole thing about using the literal term the matrix and i think he even uses the coding green imagery from the movie to to to, to you know go off his popularity and he has some weird story about, you know, we're all being fed false illusions and false reality from these lizard aliens on the moon controlling us, you know. And I mean, I guess that's possible. I never really considered it. But but it's probably, you know, it seems a little outlandish. And, and trying to apply, like, the Matrix literally to the real world is, like, where people go wrong instead of just understanding it as, like, a metaphor for sociocultural processes, uh, you know, without prevailing narratives and ideologies dominate society and ultimately change. That's the way it should be understood. 
Right. I think it could very easily and obviously has. I think as you, we talk more and more about conspiracy theories, you see how they all link back to, you know, similar ideas of of sort of mainly racist or or anti-feminist sort of hegemonic ideas that uh, uh, heavily lean towards anti-Semitic ideas. And, and, and all of these people that tend to view it from literal perspectives, um, they, they all follow and trace themselves back to, to very, very problematic and, and prejudiced ideas. But there's also the way of viewing it that I think has gotten uh, it, it they tried to get away from that, and there's the the view from sort of a mythic analysis perspective, sort of like a, a Roland Bards would suggest, like viewing not just the it, like if you're looking at the world in a car, you know the the power isn't necessarily in what's outside your windshield, but it's looking at the windshield and and the sort of filter that sort of creates the picture of what you're seeing um, and sort of frames it and primes you in certain ways. And, and the Matrix also acts that way uh, it, as something sort of like how, how Cypher, when he's looking at the code and, and the Matrix and Keanu asks him if that's what it is, he says like, oh yeah, but I don't even see it anymore. I just see blonde, brunette, redhead, etc. But even today, those that sort of trying to view and and look at the lens rather than what's beyond it can lead to the same ends, you know, with people that are viewing like QAnon COVID pandemic related 5G conspiracy theories. Um, they, they're trying to sort of see the lens, but it, but it still leads back to the same sort of ideas. So I, it, I think thinking about it in a conspiratorially minded way makes me a little bit pessimistic about the effect that the movie has had. But I also know that that is not really what the film is about. It's, I think, more of a product of the climate that has sort of grown out around the movie. Yeah, I I actually, I want to turn to that from sort of a film theory point of view, which is, there is this real dispiriting trend, I think, especially in the internet era. This has always existed, but the internet has sort of made it easier to propagate, which is, I want to know definitively what this movie means. I want to have mm. all the symbols laid out. I want to have a concrete theory of the center of this movie. I often call it fundamentalist criticism because it is just mm. like this idea hmm. that there is a single answer that will explain the matrix or Mulholland drive, or a really recent example is the Jordan Peele movie us, which I think is a beautiful, mm. brilliant, like series of symbols about what it's like to be alive in America and be like movie. one of the upper classes right now. And like, that is so often reduced to like a single meaning for what it means. And um, there's a, a famous uh, film theorist named Siegfried Krakauer, who uh, was born in Germany and, and emigrated to the U.S. right before World War II. Um, and he wrote a book called From Caligari to Hitler, which examines sort of the German film industry from the era of uh, F.W. Murnau in the late teens, early 20s to the rise of the Nazis. And sort of his theory is that Movies especially provide a window into like a culture subconscious because so many people are making them and so many people have input on them. So our attempts to look for like, like literal meanings in movies is just like a, a, a self-defeating because in some sense they're dreams that like a country is having. So the matrix is a dream the United States had just like us is and like they're telling us things about how we see ourselves filtered through 
a number of people who live and work here. And I think that is a much more useful frame to apply to these movies than sort of the idea that like you can figure out the single meaning behind them that I know nobody here is talking about, but it's a really pernicious idea in film culture. That's really fascinating um, of a term. I think it's really useful, um, Emily, uh, fundamentalist criticism. Because it's a shame because I can't think of a movie that should be interpreted less that way, that has a more open-ended um, sort of ongoing, you know, grappling with what the movie is saying. I mean, like we touched on earlier, I mean, I'm a cis dude. The trans metaphor had to be explained to me, uh, you know, a few years ago. I don't remember when, but I mean, obviously the light went off as soon as it did. I was like, wow, this movie is, is about everything in the whole world, isn't it? I mean, it's just a beautiful, beautiful, <laughs> metaphor, beautiful metaphor for, for, for everything you can imagine. And, um, and that was never apparent to me. So it's a, it's a shame that, that, that's such a, um, open to interpretation film has, has created or contributed to that. Well, I think also kind of what makes films like this so beautiful is that is the ambiguity of how you watch it or like the lens through you see uh, through which you see and watch the film. Because as I was watching it, I was also thinking about how this how the whole story was kind of a metaphor for how we view social media now, too. Um, So this idea of like what what is real and what isn't like the life you live on the internet like emily was saying earlier like our our internet culture has kind of changed uh, certainly how we uh consume a lot of things and how people sometimes live separate lives online than they are in person and that's what kind of what um i i kind of saw the same thing while i was watching westworld and uh, obviously these have two very similar narratives in terms of like what is and what isn't real um And then another thing that kind of struck out to me as well was that this idea that um, techno panic was so was so heightened at the time that this movie came out. Uh, so the Y2, uh, Y2K and the the fear of what the Internet would bring. And I just think it's interesting that that was the panic that was happening at the time period. And then I viewed it from a way that technology is allowing people to have these these separate lives and not not even recognize re- not even recognize it. And it was a another film that came out much later. And when I first watched the first gosh 20 minutes of the Matrix, I was like, oh, this is like iRobot. They created machines that are going to take over the planet. Um, <laughs> and then it's like our our technology has led to our own demise. Uh but again, like going back to that idea that this movie was so ahead of its time, even like when I was watching, I was thinking about the metaphors the movie had for like social media's role in our life. That's a really fascinating interpretation. I've never thought of. I'm excited to watch the movie at some point in the near future. I usually watch it like once a year, I'd say, and watch it with that (laughs) in mind. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it really, it goes to, because there's a little interest. There's the movie is filled with these um, allusions and, and references explicit or implicit to uh, history of philosophy concepts like we discussed. But one of the ones we didn't touch on yet was, um, in the movie early on, uh, 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 Neo is in his apartment and these, mm. uh, these people come over to his house, uh, to, um, to buy a uh, code and he, to give it to them, he takes a book off a shelf mm-hmm. and opens it and it's empty and it just has the code in there. And so the book you see briefly is Simula and Simulacrum by a philosopher named, uh, Baudrillard, I think is how you pronounce his name. Mm. Uh, uh, forgive me if I, uh, mess that up. But uh, now it's really funny because I, I recently was able to do anyone who's not familiar with um, a sociologist named Fabio Rojas 
definitely look into his work. He's a huge Matrix fan. He's really thought about these movies a lot. And he also does a lot of work on uh, history of like civil rights struggles and things like that. And uh, I did a, a like a reading group with him for Students for Liberty, the organization I work with, uh, uh, where we watched the Matrix movies and also read some literature associated with them. One of them being Simula and, or excerpts from Simula and Simulacrum, that book that's in the movie. And so the basic just from the Baudrillard's ideas, as I understand them, and, and they're particularly complex or hard to understand, depending on who you ask. So, so certainly there's room for interpretation. <laughs> yeah. But but the basic just is exactly what you were saying, Natalie, which is like, at some point, it becomes impossible to distinguish the real from the unreal. And when Morpheus is explaining the the real to Neo uh, later on, he, said, he uses the term the desert of the real, and that's straight from the book, I believe. And, um, you know, the idea is that, you know, I, I, to me, a very useful example to illustrate Bajorat's point is like Disney World. Like yep. <laughs> when you're like like when you're yeah. there, what is artificial and what isn't? Like even your interactions with the cast members, you know, there's this artificiality, this this standing in the way. And and I'm not really like shitting like I live in Orlando. I like Disney World. Like I actually <laughs> got too. engaged. I got engaged with Disney World. I love Disney World. Um but but it's useful to understand this idea. And it's kind of funny because I believe Baudrillard complained and said the Wachowskis didn't understand his book. And then the Wachowski shot back and said he didn't understand the reference because in the movie, the book is empty. So they were actually criticizing him for like offering another artificially constructed empty theory that doesn't actually get us anywhere or explain anything. I don't know. You can get into hmm. the weeds of like what all this actually means. <laughs> right. And you can probably huh. write a thesis on it. But um, but it's really fascinating, I think, for you to bring up like social media in particular. It's it's very cool that movie can, you know, long before social media was a thing can help us understand it now. Right. And it's uh, especially what Baudrillard, I think, really emphasizes in that book is he uses terms like real. And I think even instead of unreal, I think he uses the term hyper real, um, hyper reality. Um, So it's like you said, when you go to Disney World, there's a a layer of artificiality. uh, but it, but it's so well constructed and maintained yeah. that people still get swept up in it. And while I'm sure there's people that kind of see through this sort of disingenuous nature of it and sort of are are looking for, you know, the, the cast members, as they're known, to sort of be acting like real people or to, to yell Andy's here and watch them, you know, fall to the ground uh, in the <laughs> Toy Story world like people do. Um, there's a lot of people and it's it's a lot of people that I know buy into it completely and they love it because they can kind of lose the other reality and feel as though they are home in the, the hyper real. And uh, there was another example that Baudrillard really, really, really used to explain this, that we studied back in many, many years ago in my wise days of graduate school, (laughs) um, where uh, he talked about uh, specifically the television depictions of the Gulf war um and how the sort of even more than like the war in vietnam uh the constant daily uh bombardment of images of what it was of what it was like in the gulf war constructed a hyper real picture of what that conflict was actually like which had very real repercussions on the later war on terror and and what it could represent and even if it's not necessarily conspiratorial, it certainly has that tone. And like we said, it traces itself back to racist and uh, very, very problematic ideas that are sort of anti-globalist and and nationalistic um, that I think have influenced the sort of foreign policy and and 
uh, leaning on defense and war uh, as as a means of establishing power in a, a global economy. Um, so I, I think it's really, really interesting to bring up hyper-reality um, as opposed, in relation to this movie, especially when you can read it in so many different ways, which for some movies I would get really, really frustrated with because I would see it as lazy. But for The Matrix, being able to read whatever you like and, and sort of slot in different lenses of seeing it actually, I think, makes it even more enjoyable and interesting. Well, Andrew, I think it's actually pretty interesting that you bring up this idea of like if, of hyperreality and its effects on not only our culture, but how we view things like war or suffering or misery. Because this is one of my favorite quotes from this movie is uh, Agent Smith is uh, talking and I, I had written it down. So I'll, hopefully I don't butcher the quote, but um, he's explaining how they made the Matrix and the first one failed and that um, no one would take to it. But he goes on later to say, but I believe that as a species, human beings define their reality through misery and suffering. So the perfect world was a dream that your primitive cerebrum kept trying to wake up from, which is why the matrix was redesigned to this. The peak of your civilization. I say your civilization, because when we started thinking of you, it became our civilization, which is, of course, what it is all about evolution, Morpheus, like the dinosaur. Look out that window. You had your time. The future is our world. The future is our time. I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species and I realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops an equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and you multiply until every natural resource is consumed. The only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There's another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what this is? A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague and we are the cure. I just thought that whole scene was he, when he's talking to Morpheus, Agent Smith is talking to Morpheus, was just excellent. Um, do I, do I believe that human beings are a cancer? No, but I just thought this whole, the metaphors going on throughout this paragraph and this whole idea that we define our reality through misery and suffering, which is interesting why you brought up like the hyper-realism that we used to show on TV of war, I think is is not wrong. Like, I don't think a lot of these points are necessarily incorrect, uh, but I think they're, they're also heightened for entertainment. Um, but I just loved that part of um, the movie. And I thought that quote was just really beautiful um, in terms of it's, it's elegance and it's kind of, negativity at the same time <laughs> yeah i think part of the brilliance of that that scene is um i think it's the first time it really shows us that the machines and in particular smith has his own thought out perspective on the world and it's not just some yeah. sort of robotic uh uh automatic reaction to things um and it's even a perspective that when he puts it that way, you know, it can sound very compelling and humans can even participate in that perspective if they were uh, persuaded by it. Um, and, and in a way it humanizes, you know, this non-human robot. Um, I think oh, it's a really, really fascinating scene by expanding the character of Smith and giving him more depth too. I, uh, I want to just sort of um, mention two points. The first of which is it is very strange that this movie has become a calling card uh, of, I would say, uh, the alt-right because 
the Wachowskis themselves are very famously ex- extremely leftist um, socialists. And like you occasionally will see a, a news story about like some protest against capitalism or Donald Trump or something. And like Lana Wachowski will be like, like quoted because she's there joining in the protest. And like, they have, uh, mm-hmm. they have certainly um, uh, given money to those causes and things like that. So it is interesting to me, the degree to which this movie has been interpreted by so many different people as being about their cause and about their fight even a, to the literal opposite of its director's sort of intentions. I've always found that a, a fascinating thing that happened with this movie, because I think you can project whatever you want to onto it. And uh, I also wanted to mention the character of Trinity, who was a real groundbreaking character in terms of uh, female action heroes. And she is, you know, this, this badass who kicks people in the face and can float around in the sky and do all these amazing things. She ultimately ends up uh, an adjunct sort of to Neo's story. And that created this whole other type of character who is the, you know, badass lady hero who ends up playing a subordinate role to the guy who is ultimately the chosen one. And that in and of itself became kind of a pernicious trope. But this is the first example of it. And you can see why everybody wanted to copy it because she's so cool. She's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Also kind of, I don't know. I, since I, like Corey already told you all, I watched this movie for the first time this week. I think I, I didn't, I loved the Trinity character before the love story element came in because I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, they were doing so good with her character. She's like strong. She's a badass. And then I was like, oh, they just fell into like such a common movie trope. (laughs) Like I was like kind of upset that the love element even came in. I mean, I understand why I did and because of the Oracle and all that stuff. But I was just I I don't know. I guess I was kind of hoping for more because I just thought like. I, I just saw her in a different light before that. And then with the love element and then her, she becoming kind of like a subordinate character, I was like, dang, I was like, she she's so close, almost had it. But yeah. Um, and it's not even like she, you know, falls in love with Neo in addition to having, you know, some other goal. And like, because you could you could see how if she was, you know, a little bit more of a you know, three dimension, not that she's two dimensional, I would say there's <laughs> definitely dimensions, of, you know, there's yeah. been progress uh, in, in the depiction of women. And she is sort of a step in that. But that becomes the totality of her story arc. And e- the oracles, like even destiny that she provides her is centered around Neo. So it's like, you got you really got so close. Yeah. Um, and it just it just makes me sad. Yeah, I, agree. I don't I don't really disagree with what any of y'all are saying. But I just want to say, that scene and the penultimate fight when the camera zooms in on, on Trinity and then she's holding the gun to the agent's head and she says, dodge this, and it zooms out and it's slow motion. That seems awesome, just, just so you all know. I love that I love it. It's great. But yeah. are. And, and I think that's something that I forget. Oh, I, and I when I watched it, I was like, oh, that was a great moment. Is <laughs> At one point, I mean, she really does save him at some point. So it's not like she is, you know, uh, she doesn't serve a purpose it's that the purpose is to save the the man who ultimately is the one that is viewed as as the sort of you know i mean not not wrongly the white savior of the storyline i think like landry said there has certainly come a, f- a long way in progress in terms of how uh, the roles that females play in movies. And I think this one was certainly still groundbreaking. Like it wasn't necessarily that she was the damsel in distress. Right. So we've come up, we've come a long way from that common movie 
trend for especially for female characters but i i would just wanted to see a little bit more from her and now for the time in the show where we share all of the other media that we are consuming during this time this is locked in so natalie emily Corey, what else are you locked into well, during this locked-in period, uh, my wife and I have spent <laughs> a lot of time watching, like rewatching old amazing shows. Not really old, like Lost and Mad Men. If y'all haven't seen those, those are some oh. of the best shows ever. Um, Lost. In terms so of, oh yeah, Lost is great. Um, but in terms of new stuff, um, we've been watching this uh, Netflix original called Dead to Me with like Linda Cardellini from Freaks and Geeks. Um, mm-hmm. If y'all, I don't know if y'all heard of that. It's really good. It's like two seasons in. It's like a dramedy. Um, and it's just full of like weird twists and turns and, and, and hilarious dark comedy. Um, it's like genuinely one of the most unique shows I've seen. Like, like nothing I, 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 I usually see like some things coming in shows, but this show, this show always, always uh, catches me off guard. Um, and then in terms of non-media uh, projects, um, I want to, you know, suggest everyone check out the center for sale society. We're publishing this month, um, a mutual exchange symposium, which I didn't organize it, but my colleague Emmy did. And that's just a discussion with a bunch of anarchist thinkers writing essays and, and back and forth. Um, and it'll eventually be put into a physical book for um, everyone to have. And um, cool. th- this topic is on economic calculation and, and, and markets and prices and, and, and communal uh, economic calculation and, and um, all that good stuff, not really relevant to this issue. Um, and then what I've been working on personally, um, I guess if people are interested in my work, um, like I said, I, I do philosophy, um, and I do a lot with anarchist political theory, um, virtue ethics, Aristotelian philosophy, that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm actually working on um, a book chapter and hopefully a, a full-on book um, about uh, Murray Rothbard, who is a controversial, rightly so, figure, um, but who I see some value in. And uh, it's called Two Cheers for Rothbardianism. If that helps explain our perspective. So be on the lookout. That'll be in the, the Rulege Anarchist Handbook. Um, forthcoming in the next few years. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm working on. Uh, I have so many things I've been consuming recently. <laughs> uh, I want to shout out a couple of uh, things that you can watch right now on streaming. If you have Hulu, actually you can rent this anywhere, but it's free on Hulu. The movie Shirley is fantastic. Uh, it's about uh, Shirley Jackson, played by Elizabeth Moss, who I genuinely believe to be the best uh, actor of my generation, uh, just across the board. She's a brilliant performer, and this movie gets at what she's so good at, which are these tiny micro-expressions that indicate the little emotions that are flitting through her brain at any given time. It is just, it's part of one of my favorite subgenres of film, which is mid 20th century white people yelling at each other in a big house. Like, I just <laughs> love those movies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I also would like to shout out the, uh, HBO series, I May Destroy You, which, uh, is a British show that HBO is a co-production, I believe. It's from the, uh, writer, actor, the writer and actor Michaela Cole, and it is about, the aftermath of a sexual assault and it is somehow so much less grim than that sounds. I don't want to say it's life affirming because it's not, but it is about the ways that sort of women can like move through that and sort of try to find a way to, to, to cope in that situation. Uh, And finally uh, I want to shout out the Netflix show, uh, Babylon Berlin, which consumed most of my, uh, my time in quarantine. It is a German series about Berlin in 1929. 
And it's, it's uh, a sort of a police drama, but not really. It has musical numbers. It has one of the best will they, won't they romances I've seen in ages. And it is a really brilliant, like symbolic sort of story about the rise to power of the Nazis and how blinded like other people in Germany were to what was happening until it was well too late. The third season came out early this year. The fourth season supposedly goes into production later this year, though who knows with all the, uh, who knows with all the COVID of it all. Um, but it's such a brilliant show. Oh, and I'm reading War and Peace. I don't know if you've heard of it. Good book. Um, <laughs> oh, as to what yeah. I'm, yeah, as to what I'm working on. There's way too much, but I will plug, uh, <laughs> I will plug my work at Vox at Vox.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Emily VDW and my, uh, scripted fiction podcast, Arden's second season drops July 6th. So I have been working on that endlessly. Uh, I think I'm really proud of it and I'm really hopeful that people will check it out. Oh, that's, that's very exciting. We'll have to check that out for sure. Um, it's other, very good. Everyone will enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so things I've been consuming while literally locked in side, um, have been, so at, uh, libertarianism.org, we've been working on an extensive website redesign and we have finally gotten into the last stages of that. We're just, you know, doing the normal bug hunting. So while I hunt for bugs, I had outer banks on, uh, in the background. It's the, it's just a new Netflix show. Um, I enjoyed it, uh, par- partially because there was little thinking that had to go into watching it. I could enjoy it while not, um, you know, Googling, like, did I understand this episode correctly? Like I had to do for Westworld. Um, and then other things I've, uh, kind of been, kind of been watching. I did watch Just Mercy, uh, because Amazon Prime had it for, uh, Amazon Prime still has it for free, I believe. And the other thing I started reading Little Fires Everywhere. I told myself I would read the book before I watched any of the show that shows on Hulu with, uh, Reese Witherspoon and, Oh gosh, I'm gonna blank on her name. Uh, the woman from Scandal. Carrie what is Washington. her name? Carrie Washington. Washington. There he is. There he is Carrie Washington. Um, I I'm only about 100 pages into the book, and it it's pretty good so far. And I have taken a break from my World War II fiction novels, and uh, Little Fires Everywhere is is a nice break from that. So I just recently finished my first ever complete watch through. I'd seen the first season, I think, once before, but I actually took the time to sit down and finish Avatar The Last Airbender uh, last week. It was great. We're going to start Legend of Korra soon. Uh, It has been very, very interesting. For those of you who may not be familiar, it is an anime-inspired show, a cartoon, though, uh, created by Nickelodeon. um, Really? uh, Yeah, it was on Nickelodeon. How did I not know that? I don't know because you're missing out. Uh, and it's a and a shockingly complex and nuanced uh, children's television show about that tackles issues such as war, genocide, um, mastering the elements and bending fire, earth, water, and air, um, refugees, uh, all types of very very interesting topics. It has an awesome redemption arc for a character that I think is is very well done, and for a children's show is is just really great. So if you have kids and you want to give them a great show to watch, or you just like animated shows in general where there's like awesome fight scenes and interesting sort of soft magic. Um, 
I would highly recommend it. And then there is a second series, the the Legend of Korra, that I have not started yet, but is set in the same universe. Um, I have also just started reading uh, a book called How to Wreck a Nice Beach by Dave Tompkins, and it is a history of the vocoder, um, which you might recognize from music by people like Africa Bambata or a, a lot of uh, electronic and, and sort of funk music starting in the, in the 70s um, and sort of was a, 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 pre, uh, a progenitor to the sounds that uh, auto-tune became. Uh, in fact, a lot of people thought Believe Cher's song that was actually the first to be released with the auto-tune software. A lot of people thought it was a vocoder originally. But it was actually developed by Bell Labs in the 1930s as uh, a way to uh, compress and then send and resynthesize speech over the transatlantic cable um, that was then uh, funded by the U.S. military uh, and used by people like FDR and JFK to speak in uh, covert uh, lines uh, and was sort of used by the military, and then was reconstituted as a musical instrument. Um, and so it's a, a really, really fascinating history book about this device that is is not super technical, and it's written by Dave Tompkins, who writes for Slate and a lot of other uh, different uh, outlets. But I highly recommend it if you are interested in production, music, war history, or technology or anything like that. I just wanted to piggyback uh, Landry because I also finished for the first time Avatar like last week. That's a really weird coincidence. I forgot to mention it because I wasn't watching it the last few days. Um, but yeah, the show is amazing. Totally uh, second to everything you said. It's very philosophical um, uh, with Buddhist themes and Eastern religion themes. And, and I love shockingly complex children's programming. Of course, who doesn't? So um, yeah, and it's, and it's honestly one of, it probably has some of the best politics of a lot of cartoons I've seen. There's an episode where we're meant to root for a prison riot against an imperialist government. It's awesome. It's awesome stuff. Thanks for listening. If you wish we were all in the 1999 Matrix-style simulation and not the malfunctioning 2021, make sure to let us know on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on our newly redesigned website, www.libertarianism.org.